And today's lecture is on revision and editing. Um, and an interviewer once asked Ernest Hemingway to name the hardest thing about writing, and he replied, getting the words right. <laughs> Many of you are likely taking workshops this week in which your peers are commenting on your manuscripts. You may get your precious stories and memoirs and poems back dripping in red ink. Well-meaning peers will say things like, the mother character is the most interesting thing about this piece. Or, could you collapse these scenes? It's dragging a bit here. Or, the ending is unsatisfying. It doesn't deliver based on what's built earlier. Or, consider rewriting this piece in the first person to get into point of view. And it goes on and on, right? Um, the story would really be more interesting in a set in a dystopian world. My husband once sort of joking and sort of not said to me, could there be a dinosaur in this piece? And I was like, no, no, there could not be a dinosaur. Um, so I can go on and on. And, 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 you, and you get all of these suggestions, all of these voices, all of these comments about how you might revise. And sometimes it feels as if it might be easier just to throw your piece in the trash. Um, but Mary Ellen is here to help us find a way back into our first drafts, our earlier drafts, to consider which suggestions to dial in on, which to ignore, and which to move past. How to, as they say, see your work again. Mary Ellen holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. She is the author of a literary memoir, The Rooms of Heaven, and her second book-length memoir, Awake in the Dreamhouse, was awarded a National Endowment for the Arts in, a, in, in Creative Writing Fellowship. She taught here at the festival in June. She lives in Iowa City, and she works full-time as a writing coach. Please join me in welcoming her now. Okay, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Thank you all so much for being here. Well, I'm not teaching this week in the works in the the um, festival, but I did teach in June. So, um, actually, wasn't planning on saying that much about what to do with the comments you get from your workshops, but I can definitely address that too. So, uh, I'm going to take a slightly different uh, slant on editing than you may have heard before. And um, I have looked really closely at what happens inside me when I edit my own work or help somebody else edit their own work. Um, but there's another aspect to this talk, and that is that um, I believe that what we do when we write and when we edit is also a kind of spiritual practice that it might help to become aware of. So. Um, the name of my talk is Edit Like a Zen Master, but I realized later that what I really should have called it is Edit Like Eckhart Tolle. Has everybody heard of Eckhart Tolle? Anybody not heard of Eckhart Tolle? Uh, he um, is the author of The Power of Now and A New Earth and a couple other things. If you Google him, you'll see that he has been called um, by some people the most spiritually influential person in the world right now. <laughs> Um, I've been rereading his book, The Power of Now, lately. Um, and what I've been realizing is that what he says in that book and other books is exactly what I've been trying to say to some of my writing coaching clients. Except that he's talking about ways of getting to more conscious living 
applying certain ways of thinking, mostly ways of not thinking to everyday life, and I'm talking about applying them to writing. Uh, we'll talk more about that at the end. Um, thing I want to say now is um, when you apply those Eckhart Tolle principles to writing um, and to editing, when you do them and you practice them as you're sitting there focusing hard on some piece of writing, you are also doing them in life and you're learning how to do them in life whether you know it or not. So I sort of like to come back to that at the end of the talk. Um, like I said, this talk is called Edit Like a Zen Master or Edit Like Eckhart Tolle. I'm going to talk about editing today. Um, what you do when you've written a first draft and you've got something good, but now it needs to be finished. Or else what you do when you put up your first draft in your workshop and a whole bunch of people have told you what they think is wrong with it. Um, I believe there's no such thing as bad writing or good writing. I firmly believe that. There's only finished writing and unfinished writing, and most writing is unfinished. So uh, that is to say good writing doesn't just spring into the world out of computers of the talented few people, and that's it, and the rest of us untalented people, we're out of luck. Good writing emerges over time through a process of revising, editing, editing, polishing, finishing, and making it better and better. So um, don't ever let somebody tell you that your writing is not good or feel that your writing is not good. Just know that it's a process and what you're writing is not finished. Um, so as a writing coach, I do a lot of finishing of writing with my clients as well as working with my own writing to do that. And uh, lately I've been paying attention to exactly what happens inside your mind when you're finishing or editing or whatever you want to call it. Um, I pay attention so I can help them do it more effectively and I've just been paying attention to it. Um, so I'm talking about the kind of editing where you go through the writing sentence by sentence, word by word, looking for anything that gets in the way of the writing doing its job. Um, I personally believe that when somebody tells you to add a dinosaur or that your mother is not a good enough character, that is not helpful because it's really hard to know how to translate that on the page. And any kind of editing that I do, you have to, it's all in the writing. Writing is made of language, so to change writing and fix writing, you have to look closely at the language. So that's what um, a lot of what I do when I work with people and what I do myself. Um, so I like to kind of call the kind of editing that I do combing. I have some made-up words for stuff, and I think of it as like going through the writing with a fine-tooth comb. Um, so I sort of imagine this big comb going down through all the language, combing out the tangles, untangling the little snags, finding whatever words are in there that don't work, uh, looking for gaps or anything that's not quite right. I call that combing. And I was talking about that in my class in June, and one of my students said, every time you talk about that, it reminds me of lice. <laughs> she had kids combing lice out of hair. And I thought, oh, I guess maybe that is partly what's at the back of my mind when I think about combing, because it's like the same thing where you're looking very closely for what's in there. Um, so uh, as a writing coach, I spend a lot of time with my clients coaching or, or combing, and we're both doing it at the same time. 
I'm looking at the writing on my computer screen. They're looking at the writing probably in their own house, uh, you know, on their computer screen. We use Google Docs a lot. If anybody's used that, it's a program where both people are right there in the same document and you can both make edits at the same time. Um, I've always been pretty good at editing and it wasn't until I started doing it with other people and trying to sort of describe how to do it or describe what I was doing when I did it that I realized consciously that what I had been doing all along and that's when I noticed something really interesting um, editing, polishing, finishing, combing through language is a spiritual practice it is a spiritual practice as challenging and exacting and mind and spirit expanding as doing yoga is maybe more mind and spirit expanding than doing yoga. So, you know, you might be like, ah, I don't want to hear about that part. But the truth of it is, it really does help you learn how to work with your own writing if you look at it that way and you sort of understand it that way. So, um, all writing, I've also realized, is a spiritual practice, whether the writer knows it or not. And I've learned a lot about all kinds of spiritual stuff, principles, behaviors as a writer and a writing coach. I have really come to believe that writing teaches us how to have faith, how to be mindful, how to meditate, and teaches us something about just about every spiritual practice you can think of or principle you can think of. Um, and again, if we have time at the end, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, and what I've noticed about editing is that, in some ways, that's the hardest spiritual practice of them all. So, what does Eckhart Tolle have to say that relates to editing? Here's a quote from his book, The Power of Now. Only if you are able to be conscious without thought can you use your mind creatively. Only if you are able to be conscious without thought can you use your mind creatively. Whenever an answer, a solution, or a creative idea is needed, stop thinking for a moment. By focusing your attention on your inner energy field, become aware of the stillness, and when you resume thinking, it will be fresh and creative. Um, again, that's from Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> he gives me credibility. <laughs> He's the most influential spiritual leader in the world. So that's what he says. And he's not talking about editing. He's just talking about in general. But it's really true. When I looked at what I was doing with editing, I realized that's what I'm doing. Um, and what I have to do in order to be able to edit successfully. Um, so I'm going to try to describe what I've noticed happens inside me when I'm editing, uh, when I'm combing through the language, trying to make it work better. Um, in other words, trying to find what isn't quite, quite working and replace it with something that does work. Finishing it, basically. Everybody has to finish their writing, and this is how I finish my writing. And I've found it's amazing how much better you can make a piece of writing just by working a little bit with the language. Um, so, I, again, I'm going to try to describe the spiritual practice I'm talking about, like how do you edit like a Zen master or like a Cartola. So, when I sit down in front of a piece of writing to edit it, um, whether it's my own or somebody else's, of course, I start reading. I read carefully. I turn my attention button on high. Um, as I read, I pay attention to how I feel as a reader. 
Am I interested? Am I bored? Um, can I get a clear picture of what this person is talking about in my imagination? Am I confused? Um, am I engaged? Or is my attention wandering away? Um, and, you know, a lot of where I start off with is, am I engaged? Am I, you know, am I like, I can't get into this? You know, in the past, I probably would have thought, oh, it's my fault, I can't get into it. But, and maybe it is my fault for some reason. But a lot of times when I can't get into a piece of writing, even my own, I can't engage with it. It's because there's some problem in the writing itself. So um, I have to, I'm, you know, there, what I'm doing when I'm reading that stuff is I'm being very mindful. I have to be present. I have to be mindful. I'm listening to my intuition. I'm paying close attention to how I feel as I read. Right? It's not that hard. We're writers. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, we're not supposed to be like watching TV and then trying to write a couple of words over here. Um, if I can, if I'm reading, I'm engaged. I can picture everything clearly. I have pleasure as a reader. Then I keep reading. I know everything is working right. Right? I might say so if I'm working with a client. But as soon as I hit a glitch or a snag in the writing, you know, like as soon as I notice my interest is faltering or I'm wandering away or I like I can't get into it for some reason, um, I'm not captured by what's there. Then it's like an alarm bell ringing. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm not captured by this writing anymore. Um, and the thing is, what I really believe in even know is that if I, as a reader, am not captured by the writing, probably other readers are not going to be captured by the writing either, meaning the editor at the magazine you're trying to sell your book, your story to, or the editor at Alfred Knopf, or readers that you want to read your stuff. You know, I, I as a reader, have to be interested to believe that they'll be interested too. So when, it's, when I'm not interested, then I stop and look closely at the writing, where it is right there. Um, where's the spot where I start to get confused or bored or where did my intention wander away um, so I find that spot and that's a spot where I know okay I've got to work with the language here maybe it's something really simple like I have to change a, a preposition uh, prepositions are very troublesome I found it, you know we really it has to be the right preposition you can't say um, I went into the room when you're trying to say, I went out of the room, right? And it's, you know, he, he gave it to me. You wouldn't say he gave it from me. So those are extreme examples, but prepositions are hard. They have to be the right thing to really get the message across. And it's sort of at that level uh, with the language. Um, you know how we're always talking about show, don't tell. So it could be a telling word like, it was beautiful, as... The reader, I cannot picture beautiful, right? I do not know what beautiful looks like, but, so that's another spot where I go, okay, here, we need something different here that says what it was so that we can picture it. Um, so, you know, I found the spot where it needs something, and then I try something. Um, I just put down an alternative. Um, I think it's too hard to come up with some uh, alternative to beautiful, but, you know, <laughs> the sky was pink or something. Anyway, you put something down on the page. Um, some, one, if there's one thing I've learned over all the years I've been writing and, and teaching writing is you can't edit in your head. 
and you can't edit your editing in your head. And for some reason, there's always that impulse for me and everybody else. Like, we want to, like, edit in our heads and then put it down. But you can't do that. And that's a sure way to get very messed up and tangled up in your editing, too. So I just start to put down, I put down an alternative possibility that might work better than what's there. I type it on the page. Um, and then I sit with it to see if it works. And that's, here's where the real spiritual practice of this kicks in, in my opinion. Here's where the Eckhart Tolle thing kicks in, um, where you start editing like a Zen master. Um, It's in the sitting with it for a moment to see if it works. Um, In order to know whether something works on the page, I have learned you have to get quiet inside yourself, even if just for a few seconds. You have to take your attention out of it for just a few moments at least, and then when you come back, you'll know. I really believe that works. Um, If you don't know when you come back, you can just take yourself out of it again and then come back to it. Um, uh, And what you're doing there in that moment is exactly what Eckhart Tolle is talking about when he says... Whenever an answer, a solution, or a creative idea is needed, stop thinking for a moment by focusing attention on your inner energy field. Become aware of the stillness. When you resume thinking, it will be fresh and creative. That's exactly what he's saying. And it's exactly what we do when we go through and work with language. And if we're not doing that, if you know the editing is like, ah, totally confusing, and we have no idea what to do, and we're just hacking things up, then we know... We need to come back to that place inside ourselves and get quiet for a little while. Um, so another big thing I've learned over you know, all my years of writing and, and coaching and, and teaching is that you can't write narrative, you know, novels, memoirs, essays, stories, with the thinking, planning, problem-solving part of your brain. Like what Eckhart Tolle says, thought. You, that is not smart enough to write that kind of stuff. Um, that part of you is not smart enough. And if you try to write from that, what you'll usually get is something pretty flat, clunky, um, something that knows how to tell but doesn't know how to show. Um, so to really get to the good stuff, you don't have to have talent or be anybody special. You just have to be able in some way to open up a little bit to that deeper, smarter part of yourself that is in all of us. And that's a lot of the process of writing, whether we know it or not. I mean, you can just totally disagree with me. I'm fine with that. But this is what I have observed. And so what I try to do as a coach and also as a writer myself is create the conditions that will allow or even force me to let go a little bit and open up and let that thing inside me participate. Um, Uh, whatever that thing is, you know, um, there's no language for it. People have been trying to talk about it forever. You know, that's inspiration is a word people try to use when they talk about it. Or they used to talk about the muse back in the days of Shakespeare. I think that's partly what they're talking about. Or one time I read this collection of interviews and from the Paris Review with a bunch of writers, and they were all talking about that. They were all saying, I don't know, there's something really mysterious that goes on when I write, and I don't know what it is, but I know I'm not controlling that thing. Um, and it's that thing that Eckhart Tolle is talking about, too. If you look at those books by him, except he's not talking about it with writing. He's just talking about it 
um, in general. Um, and, you know, and he calls it awareness and stillness and your inner energy field and, you know, what you're getting in the now and all. So his books are all about that. The whole thing, it's all about that thing, that smarter part of yourself. You know, and what he says is that um, that power inside you beyond thought is smarter than thought in a lot of ways. It's not just nothing or, you know, zoning out and staring at the TV and drooling. It's actually there's some part of you that if you can get out of the way and, and be with it, as like some people try to do that with meditation, right? You tap into something. And, and that's what, um, you know, we as writers whether we know we're doing it or not, we're trying to tap into that thing because that's where the good writing comes from. That's where the now comes from. You know, that's... Now is about the moment, not about telling somebody. So, you know, instead of saying, she is beautiful, if you tell somebody what she looks like, it forces you to tap into that stream of the moment, right? Life. Life itself is, is, is what it is, really coming through you and your memories or um, and I, I really believe that when writing is hard um, it's because the writer is having a hard time letting go and opening up and working with that stream of energy so this is sort of an aside um, what I do I, ooh, sorry I, um, I generate new material through this process that I call fast writing and I, I helped a lot of other people do it through too as a coach and a teacher and stuff and um, it's like this little um, thing that helps me stand to the side for a little while and just get some writing that maybe you know comes through the stream of whatever memory and story and all that that's inside me so we can maybe talk about that a little bit at the end or I'll give everybody my email address I have a, a handout about it I can send um, I think there's also another podcast on the um, the um, writing university thing that, where I talk about it. Um, so anyway, I generate my own material through fast writing. I've written two and a half whole books that way. It's like amazing. It completely changed my output and my writing life. But it is a two-part process. And the first part is the actual fast writing, you know, where I'm generating new material. But the second part is working with what I got that way you know, to finish it, i.e. combing it, finishing it, finding out where I need to add more, but also finding out where the language isn't quite focused or where I need to get more in the now of the piece. Um, So, you know, I think most writers know, at least on some level, that when you're generating new material, you're having to sort of like let that, thing come through you to some degree, but most people don't think about it when they're editing. And because of that, I think with editing, a lot of people get very confused and messed up and and don't really know what to do with stuff, including what to do with the comments that you got from your class, you know. So um, what I have learned is that through what I've talked about, you have to tap into that stream too when you're editing. And you have to sit quietly, pass through the thoughts on the surface of your mind. There's another writer, Kevin Griffin. 
he calls that our agitated, fearful surface mind. I mean, who can't relate to that, right? That's the agitated, fearful surface mind. It's worries that when you're lying in bed awake at night and stuff. Um, so you have to pass through that and to get to the wisdom that lies underneath that, including, we might say, you know, now your agitated, fearful surface mind is going to be full of all the voices of the people in your class, too, and what they just said to you about everything. So, you know, you kind of have to sit there, get quiet, get peaceful, pass through that um, to what lies underneath. And it's really simple. It's sort of like what people do when they're meditating. You know, anybody here meditate? I meditate every day for 10 minutes. Great, we've got a lot of meditators. So for me, what meditation just it means is sitting there trying to quiet my thoughts for a little while to get to something underneath that's more peaceful and spacious and expansive. And it's the same thing when you edit. Um, it's like you have to quiet your thoughts, even just for a few moments. Just look at someplace else on the page. You know, when I'm in that, I start to feel that agitated, fearful surface mind thing. Then I just say, okay, stop working in this spot. Look at another spot now. Or look out the window or pet the cat for a second or something. Don't pet the cat for four hours, but... Um, <laughs> Um, so, and, and what happens if you don't get quiet and pass through your surface mind to some place of deeper stillness when you're editing? Then you start editing from the agitated, fearful surface mind. That's when you're really in trouble. And believe me, I've seen a lot of coaching clients do that. And I've done it myself, too. Um, you have on, if I might use a slightly naughty word for this podcast, you have on what I call the shit-colored glasses, where you can't see the writing in any realistic way, and your own fears and your perfectionism and your fear of not writing well and all the voices that you hear echoing in your mind from your classes and your husband or whatever, or your mother when you were a kid, they're all there talking and telling you, this writing is no good and you need to make it better, and you totally lose your compass about how to edit it, you know, and you start hacking it up, making it worse almost always, <laughs> flattening the language, all sorts of things. Because also, now you're, you're, you're doing it from the surface part of your mind, and the surface part of your mind is not smart enough to write. And so it, um, it, it flattens things, and it makes things, you know, clunky and stuff. Because that's what it thinks it's, it, you should do. So when you start getting into that agitated, fearful surface mind, um, really all you have to do is get quiet inside yourself. Take your, you know, even pray to your inner writing higher or whatever and ask it to help you or whatever it is. You know, um, just get peaceful for a minute. Don't do anything for a second. Um, let go for a few moments and stop thinking. And when you come back, like Eckhart Tolle says, it'll be different. It'll be fresh and new again. Um, I do this. I, you wouldn't believe the amount of time I spend working with writing my own and other people's. And I have a, I have a funny little name for that. I call it putting it in the editing hopper. I once had a client who thought I was literally talking about a hopper. But, um, you know, I just think of it as like there's a hopper inside me and... Um, when I don't know what to do with the writing, I just let go of it. And then, you know, I'm not really putting it in a hopper, but that's what I think of it. Um, and, and 
very quickly I know what to do because I've let go of it for a little while and I put it inside that place, that peaceful place in me. Um, um, so um, anyway, that's how I edit and I keep doing that. I keep tinkering, putting down new possibilities, listening for what's not working, trying new things out, new language to try to capture what I'm trying to say then sitting with them, putting them in the hopper for a few seconds, then reading them over, listening to my intuition again. Did these work? A lot of times you go, nope, that didn't work. Try something else. Till I find something that works. And when I do find something that works, I keep going. I just keep moving along to the next sentence. Um, I want to say I'm afraid all this might sound hard or cumbersome or overly complicated, but the truth is it's very simple and it's even easy. What's complicated and hard is when you try to edit without doing this. You know, when you're overthinking or trying to make something happen on the page or when you're editing from the thought, the agitated, fearful mind. Um, that's when it's hard. It's, I sort of think of it as using, it's sort of like using a handheld vacuum cleaner. If you try to use a vacuum cleaner without plugging it in, eh, you can shove it along the floor, but, it's, but you, it's really hard to do. And that's what it is to try to edit without part, you know, asking for help from that deeper part of yourself. Um, if you plug the vacuum cleaner in, but you just leave it lying on the floor, it won't do anything then either, of course. So you have to participate in the whole deal. But, um, but if you do, and you plug in your vacuum cleaner editor self, you will know how to, how to edit. You'll know it intuitively. You will have your compass, and you will know what's right and what's not right. And, you know, you'll be able to separate yourself from whatever somebody else said to you because you, anything you do in your writing has to come from you and your deeper creative process and your deeper creative impulse. And if you try to do something because somebody else told you you should, wow, that is not going to work. Um, uh, so uh, we can question and answers. I just want to say one or two other things before we do that. Um, Sometimes I think about what it is to write a memoir or a novel or a story or an essay. When I think about that, it strikes me just how amazing it is what we do. You know, it is really a mysterious thing to try to write narrative. Um, you know, we've got these little symbols, letters, right? They don't mean anything. They're just little marks sitting there. And then you clump those little symbols together into little groups of symbols on a piece of paper. That doesn't mean anything either. It's just a little clump of symbols, right? Um, but somehow, all those little symbols create meaning. Um, and we writers work with that stuff on the page and put it together into something that creates an experience for somebody else, right? Or the reader. Those marks on the page have the power to create a whole world with people in it and emotional experiences and spiritual experiences and the very stuff of life itself for somebody who sits there absorbing it on the page. I mean, when you think about it like that, it seems like the ultimate miracle. It really is. It's kind of like, wow, so incredible. So um, somehow in the process of doing all of that and of creating a world and a kind of virtual life or virtual experience through writing, we have to choose the right words, right? We have to choose the exact right word every time, and every word matters. And when you look at it that way, it makes sense that to choose all those words 
and to work with the language till you get the right words, you have to dip into the same mysterious well the whole thing comes from. You know, it's just, and, and, and it's a, it is, it's, it's sort of a miracle what we try to do as writers. And um, so just another thing I want to touch on a little bit is that one thing that interests me is the way that it works both ways, that the writing itself you can't write well unless you do things like listen to your intuition and get quiet and all these other spiritual practices. But it also works in the other direction, too, that once you've done all that through writing, you're learning something yourself in your own life. Um, you're getting this hands-on, everyday experience in practicing listening to your intuition better and opening up and, and all this stuff. And... Um, what I believe is that writing is our greatest teacher, too, in addition to everything else. It's, we can learn about ourselves through writing. Um, if you can't edit and you find yourself, you know, you're really having a hard time, for example, figuring out what to do, then that's telling you, okay, I can work on my intuition here more. I, and, and I, you know, sometimes it's about letting go. It's really hard for us to let go in our lives. I totally get that. But writing is a practice that makes you let go to some degree if you want to do it well. Because we want to be writers, I know, that deep inner necessity just will not go away. And we want to write well, so that makes us let go. And, and we learn how to do it through the writing itself. And I'm just really fascinated by that whole thing and the way that writing can work in our lives if we just stick with it. Um, so uh, any questions? That's it. One of the things I think of, at least for me, the, the kind of the, is more of a spectrum of that um, agitated mind to the Zen state, as opposed to like a, you know, just a transition, a stark transition. And what, what kind of like um, alarms do you get in your mind that you might be getting a little bit out of that Zen and towards the agitated? Yeah, state? great. So the question was. If there's, I'm talking about it as if, tell me if I'm not getting this right, as if there's a, spec, there's a spectrum and on one end is the Zen state and on the other state is the agitated surface mind and is it either one or the other and what, when you're moving towards the agitated mind, what kind of alarms do you get? Um, well, for one thing, it's a moment by moment thing. It's another, that's another one of the practices about it is that you can't do it all at once for everything. You can only do it one moment at a time. And um, I know that I'm moving down towards the agitated surface mind when I start to feel agitated <laughs> and when I, I get I'm confused and I've lost my compass. And I, interestingly, I do this with other people. We do it together. And so um, sometimes they're in their agitated surface mind. And um, I have to keep getting quiet inside myself no matter what. And the, the truth is that the Zen state is just like this, it's this little internal motion. It doesn't take very long. It's not like I'm a Zen all the time when I write. I just have this little internal motion where I get quiet for a moment. So I have to keep doing that all the time. And um, if I lose it, then I just do it again, you know? And does that answer that question? Yes, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I guess, I don't know. Yeah? Um, when do you know when you're finished? When do you know when you're finished? That's a good question. You know when you're finished because you feel you can read the whole thing and you feel good about it. And um, did everybody hear that? The question is when do you know when you're finished? Because 
you know how I said it's like you can tell if something needs work because when you're reading it, you start, you're confused, your attention wanders away, etc. You're listening to yourself and you know something's not working. I know I'm finished when I can read it and I don't get that. And I, and I feel good about the whole thing. And then sometimes they'll go through incarnations with that. Like if I read it out loud in front of people and I notice I feel embarrassed, then I know I'm probably not finished. Um, but if I can feel good about it and I don't feel embarrassed by it, then I'm probably finished. Well, lots of people. I think. How do you use handwriting versus typing throughout oh. the process? And I ask because the fast writing to me comes so much easier by handwriting. But then I get into a mentality of, oh, I'm going to have to type this up. And, you know, I sort of get lost. Yeah. That, the, the question was, how do you know when to use handwriting or typing of fast writing? And um, our, our questioner said that she does fast writing well with hand, but when she types, it gets, starts to get all tangled up. I, have, I, I can't even write a post-it note with my own handwriting, so that's not an issue for me anymore. And, um, but I have worked with people who say that the fast writing is easier for them. And I, I guess maybe once you start typing it, if you start to get into the agitated surface mind thing, then you have to sort of do what I'm saying here. You have to get peaceful with it and... Um, sometimes I have learned that um, uh, I think it's perfectly fine to do fast writing by hand but some people have told me that before they thought they could never fast write on the computer but once they started it actually transformed it so for me because I'm honestly there is no way I could ever do that with handwriting but I guess just sort of pay attention to what you're doing when you type it in so let's look at somebody over here you mentioned that you write by creating conditions that open up that part of your brain. What does that look like for you? Well, for me, that has a lot. The writing, the generating material has a lot to do with this thing I call fast writing. And um, um, everybody, some people, a lot of people here have already heard me talk about this, but um, if I'm going to generate something or if I'm going to ask my students to generate something, um, we pick a certain limited amount of time, 12 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour, probably no more than half hour, and we picture a moment, a specific moment. You enter the moment in your imagination, and you just write what's there in present tense. That's how I can create, that's one of the ways that I create the conditions for doing it. Because when you're writing as fast as you can without stopping, there's very little time. Your, your like, perfectionism and stuff is like way behind. It cannot keep up with that. It might try, it might try to control, but if you just keep writing, you have gener you've created the conditions to get something out on the page, and it's not gonna come out perfect. So you also have to know that, and that's where this, this second part comes in. And here you create the conditions for it by Knowing it's not about you, it's not you're not doing this bad or well or anything, it's just you just got to try to get quiet and listen. And if you can't, then you try again, I guess. Does that answer that question? So, who else? Occasionally scan the body. You know, you might find, oh my God, my shoulders are tense. 
why am I feeling warm all of a sudden? Why is my toe tapping? And those might be signals that that agitated mind is about to take yeah. off. All of a sudden, it's going to be nervous thoughts or cycling thoughts. That you can maybe catch it in the body and look at it, and maybe that will yeah, great. Did anybody did everybody hear that? It's kind of too long for me to repeat. I don't know if this is working the repeating the questions, but and did you hear that? She said that you one way you can tell that you're getting into the agitated mind is by watching your body and what it's doing. And I definitely like I get start to get tense. My stomach starts to get in a knot. And I start to feel mad too. <laughs> Somebody right behind. Yeah. Somebody thank you. Uh, recently somebody read a story of mine and said what is the point of the story and this put me into that and I tried to compose some kind of overall meaning or, or moral to the story or some, something that was asserting but then I asked well does narrative writing have to have a point any piece of it, you know. Yeah, great. So the point of that is when somebody says, what is your point, ignore it. <laughs> because you're right, it doesn't have a point. And plus also, you're, you can't, you know, nobody can sit there, figure out the point with their brain, and then insert the point into the writing. Everything that happens in the writing comes um, organically out of the story. You know, it's like, I remember I read once that people said to Virginia Woolf, what is the lighthouse a symbol for? And she said, it's just a lighthouse. And, you know, I mean, and it's, it's true. I really believe that if you put down the details as they happen in the moment, very specific details are always speak. They're always metaphorical. But you cannot figure that out with your brain. And if you try, oh, bloodbath. And so when somebody says, what is the point, then... I think that would be a good moment to realize that person is not reading with their deepest self. And because that kind of writing doesn't have a point. And it, it should not have a point. If it was just about a point, you could just write the point on a post-it note and hand it to them. And, but rarely, it's, for me, narrative writing, fiction stories or novels or memoirs, they're about life. And life itself is such a complicated tapestry. To give it a point, it's like saying, what's the point of life? It's, I think it's like they're multifaceted points, a million points. And it's, anyway, I could go on about that forever. It's a good question. Is somebody behind? Oh. Hi, hi, Mary. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Um, so this is, first of all, I, I'm, I'm completely sympathetic and in agreement with your presentation, and I'm fully on this, in this camp. But the one part of me that's um, being, if you will, a naysayer at this moment is at certain moments in my practice, it really isn't worth it for me to comb word for word. Sure. To correct a preposition. Because it's so early in the draft, I, I find myself, if I go word for word, I, I fall into the, the agitated if you will, like rigorous editor that's right. trying to hammer out sentence syntax when what matters more is the big picture. Yeah, I totally agree with that too, is that it's not always the time to do that. And it also, um, 
Because this is my spiritual practice in a way, when I do that and I enter into the whole thing with my whole self, I, I don't do that. I don't start to get into the syntax and the, you know, the rigorous thing. But, but I, I definitely can agree with that, that it's, all, it's not always the thing to do. You have, for me, it's all in the language. So it's, I don't really know how to work with it unless I'm working with the language. And, um, and I don't really know how to work with the language unless I'm really looking closely at the language. But I definitely, I definitely agree with what you're saying, too. Is there somebody up there has had her hand up for once? Uh, I wasn't born in the with uh, spell check, so could you please spell? Oh, sure. I can't see where you are. Oh, oh, okay. Here, I'm going to try to... X E C K H A R. I think it's T. Does anybody know there's a D in there? Yeah, Just T O L L E. I think the real question is how do you spell the last? How do you pronounce Tola? Nobody seems to know, and I don't know either. Uh, yes, I may have gotten the answer to this, but just in case, um, what I notice is is kind of a donut hole effect. <clears throat> where I go through one side of the donut and I go into this nice space, I finish it. And then in the middle of the night, I think of another simile. And I go back and I fall in love with more similes. I fall in love with something else. And now I'm starting to think there's another part of my brain that kicks in. And invariably, those are all wrong. But because I'm so in love with the, the little tricky little thing that I thought of, um, and so I was wondering, I mean, how do I stop? And the one thought, I, I, I couldn't, I can't think of it, except to start on a new piece. Well, I don't think you have to start on a new piece. What I would, I first of all, I think it's great that you're thinking of your writing in the middle of the night, and it seems possible that, you know, that your dream consciousness might be giving you those things too. So maybe some of them do work. Or, but I think all you have to do is just go back to go and do the same thing when you're reading and you're going, ah, eh, those don't work. Because you know they don't work. That's what you just said, right? I can't remember the language, but you said they don't work. Then you work with them. You take them out and you see if, you know, was the original better? Sometimes simpler is better. And, you know, for me, the way I can tell if something's working is how comfortable I feel with it or not. So if I don't feel comfortable with it, then I, I just keep working with it until I do. And it really is like a body feeling, like that, you know, somebody else said. If I feel good about it, they stick with it. And so if you don't feel good about the similes, just take them back out. And, and you know, I, under, I get that in love with thing, too. I, that's something that has happened to me also where, you know, it's the opposite of the shit-colored glasses. Like, all of a sudden you think that you're the next Pulitzer Prize winner or something. And then, invariably, that's always where the writing is worse because I've thought about it too much, you know, and I've thought, like, oh, this is really great. And... Um, but I just feel like there's nothing in writing so problematical that you can't wipe it off, wipe it away in an instant. And I have to say, when I'm taking stuff out and trying new stuff, I never throw anything away. I take it out and put it in a scrap file because there's a chance it might be, the, those similes might be really good. So you don't want to get rid of them totally where you can never remember them again. But 
Um, you just I would just take them out, put them in a scrap file, look at it again. Does it work better without? Do I need a simile here? Ask my writing hire whatever to give me one. And um, I think similes, you know, everybody knows what we mean by that, right? Where you're saying you're comparing it to something else, and that's very popular in a lot of contemporary writing. And that's another way to get tangled up because if you feel like you need a simile, then you probably are going to create something that's going to get in the way of the writing. Like for me, a simile is something that has to come naturally and organically out of the moment in the story. And if you're like grinding it out, it's probably not going to help that much. So this, it's a great problem to have, actually. So I think that person in the middle is. So, oh, oh, yeah. I have a question as an editor, uh, since we're here and we're critiquing other people's work. It doesn't, I, I don't really care if I see the point, if I, you know what I mean, those kinds of questions don't, because it's not, you know, I, I don't go into this, but what I do go into is if, like you were talking about a little earlier, I don't feel engaged, I don't feel drawn in, and I don't even have to relate to the characters or what's going, you know, it's not even like I, I mm-hmm. need to feel a strong emotional, no, 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 none of that stuff. But it's, it's, is there anything about it that keeps me engaged, whether it's the language, whether it's the story, whether it's the characters? I mean, you can, as a reader, I'm engaged for a thousand different reasons, depending on the piece, the purpose, the, you know. And at the end of the day, for me, as a reader, it's all about, is it compelling? And the answer to that question, why is this piece of work compelling, is, you know, it, there, there's no end to the answers. So how do you deal with that? Because what, what I do when I read someone's work and it just really doesn't knock in, um, whether, uh, is I try to look at it very academically and I'm like, well, there's not a lot of dramatic tension. You know, like, I don't feel tension. Or there's the language, you know, I, I try to look at, at what I think is lacking. But I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to handle it because I feel like if I'm not drawn in, I'm not really understanding the point of the piece, you know, and I just don't have to understand the point. How do you deal with that? Well, it depends for me on what a relationship I have with a writer and what my job is. And I try to hold in my mind always that if I'm going to look at somebody else's writing, I am there to try to serve them and to help them write something more effective. And so um, for me, I always look closely at language because it's all about language. And a point is like, I don't know, something doesn't really, so far outside the language for me, I don't know how to deal with that question. But um, um, I've always had that with, you know, even in workshops or whatever, I've always thought, if I'm going to critique this, I need to find, I need to be able to tell the person what happened to me when I was reading this. And perhaps say why. Um, But that's a lot of work. So, you know, you do the best that you can. And um, I also believe that it's really important for people to hear what works in their writing as well as what does not work. And that sometimes that's the best thing you can do is to also encourage somebody based on what is working and then say, you know, here's where I am not, you know, and if the whole thing doesn't interest you and you're not engaged, then I agree, there's a big problem with it. And in that case, that's where I don't know what I would do because it's a lot of work to, to teach somebody how to make 
you know, as a coach, then we just roll up our sleeves and we get in there and we look at why isn't this engaging? A lot of times, not enough information sometimes. Writing is too, it tells everything, doesn't show everything. You know, it could be any reason why it's not engaging. So does that kind of answer your question? Well, you have to be able to put your language, you know, it's actually a bunch of other people. So I think you also have to be aware this person has feelings so you can parse, you know, you can put your comments in ways that don't make people feel disrespected or like whatever. So did you have a question over there? Oh, you won't need that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you see what you say. That uh, you might get closer to your final draft in your first draft if you write it no matter what tense you're going to write in, write it in the present tense. Good question. Is that correct. I believe that is what I'm saying. But, you know, if it doesn't work for somebody, then who cares? I'm just saying for me, when I'm trying to generate, and I've also learned when I am writing narrative. I try to enter a moment and generate inside the moment. And so if I'm inside the moment, it makes me feel, I have more energy if I write in the present tense because when it's past tense, it's the idea I'm looking back on this. Present tense, I'm experiencing this. So it just helps me to write it that way. But if it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't work for some people, good, whatever works. So I see questions up there. Where do I stand on what? The Oxford comma. The Oxford comma? Uh, you mean the second comma in the series? I use it. Yeah. Does everybody know what she's talking about? Yeah, um, it's like when you have a series of three. And I believe actually that's the trend in modern, in modern publication is to use the second one in the series. She was red, blue, and pink. You put comma after pink or blue or whatever. Hi. Um, when you write for publication, um, so sometimes you're dealing with an editor at a, a publisher or at a publication or a website or whatever, um, and they have their own demands and they have ideas about what it's going to be, you have to sometimes do what they say. So yeah. how does that intersect with this approach of, of getting in touch with your, your inner self and what's true to you? Well, that's a great question. And even if you have to do something that might not be exactly what you would do, Right, you still have to write. You still have to connect with the writing process. So, um, if you try to write it out of your brain, your thinking, agitated, fearful, surface mind, because somebody you have to do something that you wouldn't necessarily do, you'll still get totally bollocked up. So, what I would try to do is, nevertheless try to open up and let that thing help me do what I have to do. You know what I'm saying? And also, sometimes if there's a question of somebody else, I might do it my own way first, depending on how far off my own way is, and then come back and change it for the other person. I might do that. I'm not suggesting doing that. But um, I think that's why it's really hard to do that kind of writing where you're writing for somebody else according to their specifications. But I'm saying that they're looking at something you've already written and they're giving you a critique, but, it, but it's later in the process. And 
Well, okay, so would everybody hear that? If it's, you're, it's already something you've already written, they're looking at it later in the process and they've given you a critique. Again, you have to, you can't do something just because somebody else tells you to and make it work. So you have to get inside your deepest self and first of all, see if it feels good to do what that person is telling you to do. If it doesn't, you might not be able to do it. And that might not be a bad thing because a lot of editors tell people to do a lot of really stupid things and then they say, oh, I guess this really didn't work, did it? And they're not writers, so they don't understand the process and they don't always understand what makes writing good. But, um, you know, so you have to listen to your deepest self in the same way with when you get critiques in classes and you go home and you look at the critiques, you have to listen to your deepest self. What is in this that I connect with? And then you go with that. If you don't connect with it, then you're sort of in a bind. And, um, you know, you could try it anyway, but it just seems... Um, however, I have had that happen, you know, where you know, an editor tells you to do something different. And I thought, I can't do that. Forget it. No way. But then when I sat quietly with the writing and with my writing self, I could, and I did. So I think it's just you can't get away from that spiritual whatever part of it is that makes the writing good. I guess we're almost out of time. Oh. Excuse me. Oh. Real quick, I just want to make an observation that I agree with the point of getting in touch with our own deepest self, but I think as writers we have a responsibility uh, to try to get in touch with our readers' mm -hmm. deepest self. So, I mean, if an editor is telling you things, uh, you may throw it out, but you have a responsibility to get inside. Where's that coming from? What readers he represented? Because we are in this, uh, in this, not just for ourselves, but to And so I agree with that, but nevertheless, it still has to come from deep inside. You know, like one thing that I realize I do when I edit, and I didn't even touch on that, is there's also a part of me that splits off and kind of thinks of the reader and how, you know, I put myself, I become the reader inside myself and I listen to the reader's reaction. So, of course, the reader is a big part of it. You don't just, but my only point is that you can't do that with your thinking mind because it seems like a good idea. It has to be something, you know, like if you connect with that deeper self, you will not be have any trouble in any way connecting with the reader or doing what you need to do. It's just that you the first priority has to be to write something that somebody wants to read. And the way to do that always has to be to come from the inside out instead of the outside in. You know what I'm saying? And if that those kinds of necessities are part of the inside, I think. Oh. oh yeah. And I we're out of time I think, right Jen? Do we have to quit? So feel free to contact me by email for any reason, and um, I'll be happy to hear from you. Uh, okay, I'll get one email like this. So this is actually the title of a book by me. It's a, sort of a stupid email address, but... Um, <laughs> And it's also, if you Google me and you look at my website, it'll be on there. It's awakeinthedreamhouse at gmail.com. Thank you. You've been a totally, totally fantastic audience. So thank you so much.